This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm here today with Jerry McKinney, who's a CTI member and a professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to the podcast, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You were at CTI uh, back in 2016-17, and one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was a book that you were completing during that year, uh, and which was published in 2017, Biotechnology, Human Nature, and Christian Ethics. It was published by Cambridge University Press. Just to start, let's discuss this book. You're raising this question of biotechnology and what Christian ethics has to say about it. And as a first question, just examples of biotechnology, so we kind of know what sort of technologies we're talking about here. Well, that's a good good place to start. Well, uh, we're all familiar, I think, with drugs that enhance concentration or athletic performances, things like Adderall and uh, anabolic steroids. Of course, those are also, both of them are therapies for people who have conditions Conditions that need them, but they're also uh, used by some people to enhance their performances, whether cognitive or athletic. Moving into maybe a little bit less familiar territory, we have brain computer interfaces that enable people to control neurological functions by computers. These are mostly used now for people who have conditions such as uh, limited mobility or paralysis that enable them to move limbs, but it's expected by many people that in the future they'll be able to control a lot of different brain functions. In the future, we we may have the use of gene editing techniques that uh, may, at least in a limited way, enable us to control or alter human characteristics. Brain implants that enable us to to permanently control or change uh, brain functions. Um, manipulation of cells to live longer, that hasn't gone very far to date, but, but that's an example of something that uh, many people are, have hopes for. When you see these technologies, are you generally worried about them or do you see them primarily as positive? I know in your book, you're actually not examining these as ethical questions in the sense of these things are good, these things are bad. You're asking about a more fundamental question, which we'll get to in a moment, but I'm just curious a lot of these things, are you worried about many of them or do you think we'll be able to figure out and kind of muddle our way through? Yeah, it's very rare, I think, that you can look at a technology and simply say that it's good or bad. Uh, I think about email and um, cell phones, uh, but email, um, you know, we're all permanently connected now, but I remember when I began my academic career, I had to write letters and send them through the mail anytime I wanted to um, contact someone whose phone number um, I may not have had, or someone I didn't know well enough to call on the phone. So there, uh, these are uh, f- fall under the category of most technologies that, of course, they can be used for for good or or ill. But um, I, it's also a little bit maybe too simple to just say they're neutral technologies that can be used for good or ill. They change the way we relate to our activities. They change the way we relate to our bodies, especially in these technologies. We're talking about not treating pathological conditions, but improving so-called normal conditions. So, uh, for example, the very fact that we exercise control over our our, um, bodies to the extent that we do with these technologies changes our relationship with our bodies. The very existence of these technologies changes our expectations, changes maybe things that we think we're responsible for or not responsible for. So there are, there are lots of questions they raise that are simply different from the simple questions. More complicated, I should say, than the simple questions of are they good or are they bad? We have to ask a lot of questions about how they 
change our activities, our self-understandings, our relations to other people, our sense of what we're responsible for and what we're not, and so on. How many of the technologies that you're talking about are already in development and how many are more sort of down the line and we're thinking in advance of them being usable? It's really astonishing when one considers all of the attention that's been paid to these technologies. They're, they're generally referred to as enhancement technologies, that is, and te technologies that don't treat diseases but enhance characteristics. And, and it's, it's rather striking how modest the results have been so far. Uh, just take one that um, uh, is in wide use. I referred already to uh, concentration enhancing technologies. Well, we still don't have the ability to move our cognitive capacities beyond a sort of statistical normal range that's commonly used to determine what is you know, treating a disease and what is enhancing a trait. We, we don't have the ability to go beyond a, a kind of statistical normal range, even with a drug that we've had a good deal of, of um, experience with. Um, we all know in uh, athletic performances, um, drugs can change performances and people can do remarkable uh, physical or endurance feats and that sort of thing. But even there, we're not looking at something that has dramatically pushed human capabilities beyond what they're able to do. Public health measures have changed the lifespan and increased our life expectancy, I should say, more than any technology has. Uh, so we have to say that at this point, they're rather modest. The results are rather modest. So in many ways, we are thinking down the road with thinking ahead. How are we going to reflect on these issues ethically sort of before they're already in use? Yes, I think that's right. Again, I, I will say that there are, even when we're in the process of anticipating these technologies, they, they change our understanding. We think of our nature as something that, that we are capable of altering and that changes our relationship to our nature. If we think about a, a lifespan as something that can be extended, it changes the way we experience our own lifespan and so on. So I don't want to say that, or they, they change our understanding of our own agency, the extent of our own agency and, and what we're responsible for. So I don't want to say that we need to develop them and market them and uh, distribute them widely before they begin to have effects. But but I think the, the dramatic effects that um, their proponents hope for are, are in the future. Well, as I said before, the purpose of your book is not to address these particular questions and, and sort of interrogate a particular biotechnology and say, you know, which aspects of it are, are good or bad or so on, but instead to raise a more fundamental basic question about human nature as an aspect in arguments about biotechnology. So maybe walk us through that argument and, and also maybe talk about why you see the need to focus on that basic question, perhaps in advance of the more specific uh, ethical arguments. Yes, I think we're, we have to do both at the same time. But the reason I think it's important not to lose sight of the, the question that I raise as the question of the, the normative significance or normative status of human nature is that our biological nature is ethically significant in a couple of ways. And I, I think especially two ways. One is that for many of us, at least, um, we're convinced that our biological nature is an aspect of who we are, not just something we use. So what we do with our nature is what we do with ourselves to, to a large extent. Uh, maybe looking back a little bit more abstractly, uh, if God created our nature, it isn't ethically neutral. 
it has some value or status that we have to respect. But of course, the question is then, what is that value and how do we respect it? In thinking about this issue and over the years I was working on this book, I, I thought that there were four answers basically to that question. Um, the first one, and maybe the most obvious one to people, is, uh, is an answer that, that actually comes from C.S. Lewis. Lewis famously wrote that our power over nature is the power of some persons over other persons. So on this view, our biological nature is an aspect of our very personhood. So just as persons are inviolable and not simply at our disposal, so is their biological nature. So to alter someone's natural characteristics is to violate her integrity as a person. So that's one answer uh, to the question of what we value and uh, when we value biological nature, how do we respect it? Another one, interestingly, is actually the opposite of that first one, where uh, according to a lot of people, we're meant to continue God's activity of creation. And God created us with a malleable nature so that we can shape it by our own creative activity. So the value of our nature is not found in its inviolability, but its alterability. And biotechnology enables us to fill the vocation God has given us as human beings. Then I think there's a, a third answer, maybe a more traditional answer, um, a kind of answer that's familiar to people in Aristotelian and uh, Thomistic traditions of theology. To say that creation is good is to say that there's a connection between our nature as God created it and our good. Maybe put it differently, our good is what fulfills us as the kind of being we are, and so we therefore look to our nature to know what our good is. Well, the interesting thing is we can imagine goods like extremely long life or uh, my favorite, night vision, that aren't connected to our nature as it now is. So this raises the question, especially if we have biotechnology, biotechnological capability to alter our nature, should we be satisfied with the goods that fulfill our nature as it is? Or should we change our nature to make it capable of goods that, at least right now, we can only imagine? So that's a, that's a kind of third answer, a qu question about the relation of our nature and our good as human beings. And then finally, um, many people believe our nature is destined for transformation in the afterlife. So it raises the question of whether biotechnology contributes to that transformation or whether biotechnology is a false substitute for it. So I think those are four ways in which this question about uh, what it is that we value when we value our biological nature and how do we respect it uh, can be answered. One of the things I found fascinating in the book is the way, you know, you're bringing together obviously theological voices, talk about theologians like Karl Barth or Catherine Tanner, as well as you might think of secular philosophers, Michael Sandel, Jürgen Habermas, other theologians like Oliver O'Donovan. But the way in which you bring them together as part of one conversation, it's not as though the theological answer comes, comes in as, as if from on high and just answers everything. There was even an interesting part where I noticed, I think in Habermas, but also in Michael Sandel, you actually found that interesting parts of the, along the way, even as more secular philosophers, they appealed to God in some sense, you know, that we shouldn't play God or take the role of the creator. So I, I guess I'm, Curious in your, your thought about how to bring these ways of thinking into one conversation. Well, one of the things that really, that struck me as I was working on this book is that there, with the exception of that fourth, I just gave four ways in which we can talk about the value of our 
biological nature and how to respect it. The last one about the afterlife, you don't get secular thinkers engaging that answer too much. But the other three are, uh, as, you, as you noted, they're discussed as much and in very similar ways by secular thinkers as well as by theologians. It was striking how, how little substantive difference there is between them. I had to, uh, between the religious or theological thinkers on the one hand and the secular thinkers on the, on the other hand, I had to do a, a good bit of work to determine exactly where the, the differences were in many cases. So that uh, I think is, is something that's rather interesting that there's a conversation about the normative significance of our biological nature that secular thinkers and theologians are, are very much engaged in together. But you, the names you mentioned, uh, people like Habermas, Sandel, Leon Cass is another uh, person I, meant, uh, I talk about in, in the book, and there are others as well. The striking thing about them is that none of them are professional bioethicists. Uh, they're all philosophers who work on, uh, most of them, uh, certainly Habermas and Sandel, political philosophy. Bioethics is not their, their special field, and they come at bioethical issues from a, an identity as uh, political philosophers, and that is also so that that also indicates the the limitations that we're dealing with when we try to raise these issues in the context of bioethics. Mainstream secular bioethicists, professional bioethicists, if you will, do not typically, in fact, very rarely focus on this question of the normative significance of human nature, except to dismiss it. And the question is why I found myself asking that question. Well, they rightly focus on things when they look at technologies like, uh, let's just say, a gene editing technology or something like that. They focus on safety, autonomy, and fairness. Benefit proportionate, risk and benefit proportionate. Or is is somebody's consent or personal freedom being violated? Is the distribution of it fair? These are all crucial questions and, and theological bioethicists should raise these questions just as much as, uh, and see them as just as important as secular bioethicists do. But uh, it's, it's struck me all along in thinking about this project that, that um, if you take those three issues, safety, autonomy, and fairness as, as tests that a technology has to pass, a, a technology like a gene editing technology could pass all of those tests and still raise questions that are, I think, still important for us to answer, like questions about the inviolability of persons or what's truly good for creatures of our kind. So to me, there's no reason why secular bioethicists shouldn't be raising those questions, and they shouldn't just be leaving them to the non-bioethics philosophers. What kind of response do you get from secular bioethicists when you've been in conversation with them and you, you bring in these kinds of questions, especially from a theological perspective? That's a good question. Most of my conversations with secular people about these issues are not with professional bioethicists, interestingly enough. Hmm. They're with political theorists, technology people, people in the biotechnology industry, all of whom are, are in, interested in these these issues. And what's their response? Uh, well, I have to say that uh, it, it depends on their disciplinary identity, I guess. The political, the, like people who work in political science and things like that, uh, political theory, uh, they really engage the Sandel and Habermas issues. Uh, now, the ones I've talked to and informally and in conferences and so on tend to have criticisms of Habermas and Sandel 
so they don't necessarily credit their arguments, but they find those issues interesting. The technology people are very interested in this second of the four positions that I mentioned, which is the notion that our nature is malleable. And from a theological perspective, maybe that's the way it is, the way God created it, because God wanted us to be in a process of creation, cooperating with God to, to alter our nature. Uh, those kinds of arguments are arguments that they find fascinating. But secular bioethicists, uh, professional bioethicists, it's 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 hard to it's just hard to get them to engage these issues. They just they feel that they're simply not worth raising. Um, in some cases, it's because it's a liber there's a kind of libertarian assumption that whatever our nature is. It, can't have any more significance than what than as that which we can do with whatever we please. There are some other people who take some, I think, misguided arguments by John Stuart Mill to say that that our nature can't really have any normative significance. And they've they tend to have already made up their minds. There's another group of people that I've talked with a lot about these issues, and that these include feminists and critical theorists who are very interested in the what, what I see as a problem that I raise in the book. On the one hand, if we simply give free reign to biotechnology without raising questions about biological nature, we risk reinforcing all kinds of assumptions about our biological nature that are sometimes encoded with, by uh, sexism, ableism, racism, and so on. On the other hand, if we authorize a normative discourse on human nature, maybe we're also reinforcing those things. So some of the conversations I've had with some of the, these people are sort of along these lines. Well, na- we want nature to, for many of people who come from those perspectives, we want nature to be open-ended and malleable and so on, because we don't want to you know, encode or reinforce the sorts of of um, notions of the fixity of nature that are implicated in racism and ableism and um, and sexism and things like that. And yet there's also a worry among many of these people that we're also then just writing a blank check to biotechnology and biotechnology may be reinforcing or reinscribing those same sorts of things precisely because we're not interrogating them normatively. We don't have a normative way of uh, if we don't have any normative discourse of human nature, we don't have any normative way of um, interrogating what biotechnology does. I mean, maybe we can keep criticizing it, which is important, and I think we should keep doing, but we don't, without a normative discourse, we're missing one tool to call into question, not only call into question those sorts of things, but also to provide alternatives to them. I've been getting in touch with various theologians and other scholars affiliated with CTI during this time of the pandemic to talk to them about how they're thinking about it, um, how it might be influencing their own research even, uh, and so on. So I'd like to throw that question to you, especially in regard to these questions of biotechnology. There's a lot of hope for all manner of technological innovations, and yet our whole, the whole planet has been sort of brought to its knees by you know, a virus that is in some ways a very simple virus, and yet we're not prepared for it. So is there a sense in which we might be chastened by this event? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, um, one way to think about it is to look back and, and think about how our attitudes have been shaped by the biotechnological triumphs of the 20th century. I mean, they're, they're pretty impressive, the declines in 
infant and maternal mortality, the advent of antibiotics, all the diseases that were eradicated by vaccines. Consider, if we stop to consider that history and how it's shaped our attitudes, it's natural to assume that we're progressively overcoming our biological vulnerabilities. What's remarkable to me, I think, is um, that COVID-19 could have changed that and maybe, um, maybe will change that. But what's striking for me, at least at the moment, is how it really hasn't changed that as much as I assumed that it might. Uh, the assumption is that the situation we're in now is just a pause in the story of progress uh, against vulnerability. If we just have to wait a year or 18 months until a vaccine or treatment uh, brings us back to normal, back to where we were. Well, maybe it will. Or maybe the past 75 years have been an interlude, just a pause, if you will, in a longer story of human vulnerability. And that um, there was a period of time in which we thought that there was inevitable progress against vulnerability. And maybe, maybe now, if it, let's say if we don't have a vaccine or a treatment, if we have a vaccine, maybe, but it's like the flu vaccine, it's, it's not a permanent solution. And, and we end up having to live with COVID for an extended period of time, if other coronaviruses or other similar biological agents enter into human society, then we may be rethinking our assumptions about the, the inevitability of progress against human vulnerabilities. But, but for the moment, it strikes me that we're, we're looking for every way we can to keep reinforcing it. So, Maybe say a bit more about what you mean by vulner, human vulnerability. Well, I think what, um, I think what, like, just go back to the period of time before we had antibiotics or before we had a vaccine for typhoid fever. You get pneumonia and it, it was, you know, um, much more likely to be a fatal condition or, um, you know, epidemics would sweep through communities and we'd be just powerless to resist them. And I think I, uh, people had, uh, or just if just you look at the sheer scale of infant mortality, there was powerful sense of vulnerability that I, th that I think, uh, it's not that we've lost it. I don't, uh, I certainly don't think we've lost it. But for the past 75 years, we've, we've assumed that progress was inevitable and steady and therefore would simply keep going. So whatever we haven't conquered, we're on the verge of conquering it. So the, the kind of maybe the antibiotic paradigm or the vaccine paradigm was dominant. But, but if you look at the, um, uh, a lot of the discussion about COVID, it's all about, you know, wait, just, just hang on a little bit longer, we're going to get a vaccine. So it, it seems to me that it's um, actually perpetuated that uh, narrative. And of course, maybe that narrative is right. Maybe we will get a vaccine and maybe we are inevitably progressing. But it's also possible that we won't or that we won't have an effective vaccine or not a terribly safe one or, or whatever. And, 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 uh, and again, it's possible with uh, the encroachments of humans on continuing encroachment on wild areas that will continue to have transmissions from animals to humans uh, with the globalized societies possible they'll keep spreading like this one has so we, we just don't know but it's striking to me at least for now the way that that what's striking to me at least for now is that that narrative has not really been um, challenged in the way that I thought it might have been hmm. it's interesting because a lot of people will say things like you know we can't go back it's going to be a new normal but what you're suggesting is even in that framework the kind of overall stance or mindset or you know stance in relation to nature is remains the same Right. That's right. 
Yes. And again, not everybody, yeah. um, but, but it's striking how, uh, it's, it's striking to me that even some, someone like uh, Anthony Fauci, who's, um, who I have in, enormous admiration for, it, uh, I don't know, I haven't heard recently, but, but his confidence that we'd have a vaccine in 18 months was striking to me. In the wake of COVID-19, I've read a, a lot about the history of vaccines, and I'm not sure that I would be prepared to infer from the history that um, there's a that we should have that kind of confidence about a vaccine in 18 months. Again, maybe we will, and I hope um, we will. I you know I hope the narrative of progress is right. But it but it's striking to me that this hasn't challenged that narrative in the fundamental way that I thought it might have. I think that's as good a point as any to end on, Jerry. Thanks for being on the podcast with me and talking. Thank you. Thank you.